the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter 11, Seeing Red. Dustin and Martin had Tin Man and the generator positioned near the shed to take advantage of a sunbeam. The warmer air was nicer for working on small parts without gloves. They looked up from their work on Tin Man. The sound of a Harley was coming down their road. Pastor John turned in, still pulling his plywood trailer. "'Good morning,' John said, with less cheer than usual. "'How are you all getting on out here? Ruby settling in okay? Uh, not too many stories?' Martin and Dustin looked at each other. Uh, "'Actually, she died Wednesday night. We think she had a stroke.' "'Oh!' What thin congeniality John had mustered faded away. "'Sorry to hear about that.' "'Pastor John!' Margaret called cheerily. That is, until she saw the somber faces. "'Oh, did Martin tell you about Ruby?' John nodded. "'I brought some similar news of my own. Elise died, maybe Thursday. I found her yesterday.' "'Oh, no.' "'I visited her last Sunday.' While making my rounds, she kind of knew she might not make it long. She only had a couple more days of her medications left. I asked around to see if anyone had her kind of heart pills, but no one did. She made her peace and all. We prayed together. She said I should give you this. He took a music box from the trailer and handed it to Margaret. She said you always smiled when it played. She wanted you to remember her and smile again. So, John tried to lighten the mood and change the topic. How many you got living out here with you, Martin? Well, there's me and Margaret, Dustin and Judy, a woman named Susan. That's her out there by the woods. She's on watch. Then just recently, another young couple from town who had to abandon their house, Adam and Trish. Hmm, kind of a full house. Everyone getting along okay? Martin hesitated. There was too much to say to even start, so he didn't. Yep, pretty much. That's good, that's good. Yeah, the Hamiltons, yeah, well, they aren't doing so well, said John. I think the stress of trying to get by, uh, I don't know what happened to the Boiverts. There's nobody home, no note, nothing. They're just gone. Connie and Rick have taken in a couple of strangers. Things are still kind of dicey with the people around Indian Lakes. Guess they've been getting bolder. Margaret returned with a few canned goods and a box of pasta. These are for the Hamiltons. Tell them we're praying for them, okay? Tell them they can make it. Just hang in there. She placed the food in the mostly empty trailer, then looked up suddenly and waved. Lance! Miri! She waved to an old couple walking in the road. She gestured for them to come over and talk. Well, thanks, guys, said John. I see you have company. I'd better go. Listen, this uh, might be my last visit until we can figure out something else. We're getting really low on gasoline. Uh, take care and remember that we're always in his hands. He slipped on his helmet, cranked the big Harley to life, and rode off. Lance and Miri stepped over the driveway flower bed, trimmed back for the winter. Miri carried a cardboard box. What's in the box? Margaret asked. Oh, just some of our canned peaches, Mary handed Margaret the box. A little thank you for all your help getting our wood stove going again. 
Oh, you didn't have to do that, said Margaret, with a recipient reflex. But come on in, sit a spell. We don't get guests any more. We have a little coffee left. I'll brew up a pot. The three of them chatted all the way up to the front door. Well, that worked out kind of neat, said Martin. She gives away three cans of veggies, and we get three jars of peach. A net wash in the food supplies. A good thing, too, when we're trying to make it last. Uh, yeah, about that, said Dustin. I overheard the Dunnans last night complaining about the small portions. I don't think they knew I was in the next room. Well, they'll just have to get used to it. Your mother's got it all figured out, and I have no reason to question her charts and schedules. I know, I know, but just a heads up that they're grumbling. But hey, that's enough about them. I want to get Tin Man going today. I'm beyond excited. You just called it Tin Man. Have you given up on making it look like a rocket? Oh, yeah. Now that she went and pointed out the arms and legs thing, I can't help but see a little Tin Man. Uh, why fight it now? Dustin rubbed his hands together. I figure we're going to need some springs and things. I have a box of junk under my bed from when I took apart my... Dustin's voice trailed off. I knew you took apart your RC car and your train set. You thought I wouldn't notice they were gone? Dustin smiled a guilty smile. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, suppose not, huh? Uh, I really thought a remote-controlled train without rails would be totally awesome, but, well... Anyhow, there's some good little springs and stuff in there. I'm going to go rummage for buried treasure. Back in a bit. Dustin ran up the front walk. Judy's on patrol now, said Susan. I thought you and Dustin might want some help. Where's he going in such a hurry? Uh, he's looking for some junk, some buried treasure, under his old bed. Want to go on a treasure hunt yourself? Martin asked. What do you mean? Look for more junk, don't you? Eh, yeah, you're on to me. It's in the shed, on a shelf somewhere. There's a couple of boxes of plumbing junk, copper pipe scraps, elbows, fittings, old valves, stuff like that. I'm pretty sure that in one of those boxes I had a big ball valve. It'll be a hunk of bronze about this big, with a flat handle on one side, probably with red rubber on it. But it might be yellow. I don't remember. Okay. If I do still have it, it'll make a handy air bypass valve. If we don't have it, we'll have to cobble together something else. But it's worth a little rummaging. Susan walked into the shed, looking less than enthused at her treasure quest. Martin sat on an inverted paint can while he tried to bend a handmade elbow into fitting the carburetor opening. In his peripheral vision, he saw Trish approaching from the back door. Instead of her usual ponytail, her brownish-blonde hair was down around her shoulders. She had a little twist to her walk again. Her coat zipped up. Still working on your project, hmm? She leaned over, pretending interest in Tin Man's seams. You're so smart, Martin. Uh, thanks, Martin replied flatly. He didn't look up, but continued trying to thread small nuts onto fussy thin studs. Did you need something? Well, actually, I did have something I wanted to talk to you about. Go on, I'm listening, just trying to get this little fitting to seal up against the carburetor. Well, I know how Margaret has her meals all planned out and stuff, and I know she's trying to do it all to help everyone. 
and and I can really appreciate all the time that she puts into it and all, but... Martin didn't feel inclined to help Trish out conversationally. She would get to her point eventually. He had tiny washers to not drop in the dirt. Well, I was just thinking that since you're in charge about the whole house, that you would be able to see the bigger picture, that maybe everyone in the house isn't exactly equal. I mean, I like equality is a wonderful thing and all, but you and I both know that sometimes someone is more important and the usual rules don't necessarily apply. I mean, I can see how things really are around here. She tossed her hair back and struck a couple of fashion catalog poses. Trish had to wait until Martin stopped making noises with his metal file. And, well, I really think that you deserve a little extra for all the hard work that you do around here. And what you did with your well-deserved extra portion, well, that would be your business and, and nobody else's, right? Since Martin wasn't looking up at her, she leaned over. Gosh, it's kind of warm out here. She unzipped her coat part way. Martin continued to work without looking up, more than a quick glance, which was more than enough. There was nothing but pink within the teal jacket opening. Martin sighed. Undaunted at Martin's apparent lack of appreciation, Trish continued. You know, it really is quite warm for this time of year. She unzipped her jacket further. Martin caught enough of a glimpse of a red push-up bra to prompt a deeper sigh and tighter focus on the homemade fitting seated against the carburetor flange. Trish was of average build, but the undergarment designers had succeeded in making average look like abundance. Martin still had not looked up, so she shifted her weight from one leg to another like a model at the end of a runway. So, as I was saying... What you do with your rightful supplies is your business. You could use them however you liked. No one need to know how you use them either, right? They're yours, fair and square. I know that I would certainly like a little more to eat, but that's how it goes. The meal plan is the meal plan. I'm certainly okay with that. We all can't be a leader like you. You're an excellent leader, Martin. Martin was not appreciating her enhanced average form as much as she expected. She leaned over, deeply, to whisper and present maximum assets. I looked on the watch schedule. I saw that you'll be relieving me at eight o'clock. I'll see you then, Martin. She zipped up her coat and sauntered up to the back door, pausing once to toss her long hair aside and cast a big smile over her shoulder. Martin let out a really big sigh when the back door closed. He was glad that was over. Now don't tell me you didn't see that, said an angry Susan from behind him. I was in the shed the whole time, the whole time. I heard everything. I saw everything. Oh, she makes me so angry. Don't tell me you didn't notice. You had to notice. How could you not notice? Calm down. I noticed. I might be a little slow, but I'm not that dense. I figured out what you were talking about at that last target practice. So what are you going to do about it? She demanded, hands on hips. First thing will be to trade watches with Dustin. And then? I think that's it. Martin stood up and brushed the metal shavings off his pant legs. That's it? 
Susan was stoking up a full boiler of rage. But she was practically throwing herself at you, promising, well, strongly hinting, that she'd... And in a red bra, she was standing with her back to the house so no one could see what she was doing, except I was in the shed and I saw... Oh, she makes me so mad. Susan's white fists vibrated beside her hips. Martin touched her hand, which startled her into silence. He looked her in the eye and spoke softly. First off, she was just doing that to try to get extra food. That's all. She didn't plan to do anything except be flirty and imply things to get her way. I'm guessing that that's worked for her in the past. She wasn't going to actually do anything. Even I could tell that. But who does she think she... Second, I'm not as shallow and stupid as she thinks. Maybe all the guys she's ever known have been drooling brutes who can be hypnotized by a red bra. I don't know them, but I do know me, and I'm not like that. We're all living in tight quarters these days. We all have to put up with each other and try to get along. I'm not going to create Pyle's attention by ratting her out. But she... And third, I have a much bigger problem. Suddenly all the steam vented away. What? The reason you're so angry. Oh. Susan went from superheated steam to icy waterfall. She stared at the ground for a long time. Martin let her stare in peace. He could see the many wheels turning. There was a great deal that he was not saying, so it was only fair that she be allowed time to not say things, too. When her inner computer had run through the complex equation and printed out an answer, she glanced up at him with a worried look. Are you upset with me for it? No, and that's part of why it's my biggest problem. Hey, look at all the cool stuff I found, Dustin walked up with a shallow box. I'm sure glad Mom never got around to cleaning under my bed. All these little springs will work great for making the throttle valve. Did you find that ball valve? Yes, Susan said. She held out the valve for Dustin, but continued to look at Martin with her sad, puzzled look. Then what do we do? she asked faintly. Dustin snatched the valve from her hand. Why, use it for an air-mixing valve, that's what. This has got to work. It's just way too cool not to work. Uh, listen, Dustin, I'm trading watches with you tonight, Martin said. Really? You're okay with coming on at midnight? Yeah, it'll be good for me. Best for everyone, really. Oh, cool. Hey, I can get an early start on chipping up some more fuel. Oh, I see you got that carburetor fitting done. That looks awesome. I got the little intake tube almost up. I'll glom on this ball valve and rig up a little butterfly hoosie, and maybe we can make it go for real. Martin smiled at Dustin's tinkering enthusiasm. I'm going to go up to the house a while. Will you be okay out here on your own? Oh, no problem. Don't be gone too long. I plan on working like lightning. Susan, would you go throw some more litter in the chicken's run, please? She nodded, but stood still. Lance and Mary were hunched over the Simmons's wood stove. Scraps of cardboard, lath, and aluminum foil were scattered at their feet. Margaret could easily read the what-the-heck look on Martin's face. Lance and Mary made a little dehydrator for the top of their wood stove the other day. They don't have a generator, so they needed to dry their remaining freezer meats. They thought we'd like one, too, so they came over to show us how they did it. Your wood stove is a really different shape compared to ours, Lance said without looking up. 
Gonna take some fussin' and fittin', but I'll bet you we can get something. Oh, that would be great, Lance, thanks, said Martin. He turned to Margaret to whisper. Let's go in the kitchen a minute. Okay, we're in the kitchen. What? she whispered. I think we might have a little problem brewing with the Dunnans. Trish was outside just now, strongly, uh, hinting that she'd like more food than your meal plan gives her. Martin knew the red bra approach was an irrelevant complication, not salient to the food issue, and best ignored. He wanted to imagine that Trish herself would soon look back on her actions and be horrified and wish that no one ever knew what she did. Martin was more than happy to let the whole silly incident slip into the silence of the past. If you're asking for her, no, 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 Martin held up his hands, not asking for anything, just saying that she was asking as a heads up. Well, they can't have any extra. I've calculated everything out to make it last as long as possible. We can't go deviating from the meal plan, giving out food to people just because they're still a little hungry. Her frown was not quite a scowl, but it was working on it. Yeah, uh, about that. Martin winced a little as he tried to select his words carefully. When I was over at Nick's, uh, you know, after the beggars were run off, I saw a lot of FEMA meal wrappers on the floor. Margaret's frown evaporated. I didn't remember seeing Nick or Jess or even Heather in the line on Wednesday, certainly not up in the first half of the people who got boxes before the truck left. Margaret's eyes were wide and sad. She had been found out, breaking her own strict rule. They didn't have hardly anything left, Martin, Margaret pled her case. I know we don't have enough to last until spring, but they have even less. I can't just let Jess and the kids starve while we... we still have something. I know, I know, Martin tried to sound sympathetic and not accusing. It's really tough, and I have to confess, I snuck some food out to the woods for that scruffy kid Andy that I was telling you about. You what? Is that why you put that half of flatbread in your pocket? I'll bet you didn't think I saw that, but I did. I thought it was odd. Yeah, that's what I did. And it was probably a mistake. But it sounds like they've got next to nothing out there. What else could I do? Margaret smiled a sad smile. So you do understand? Yes, but it's still a problem. If we have extra for Andy and the Oldhams, how credible is it to say that we don't have extra for Trish and Adam? Because we're still getting 1,800 calories a day. That's why. Margaret started to raise her voice. Shh, I don't know where they are. Martin held his finger to his lips. We still have decent meals. That's why. Jess and the kids don't. I can't just eat my 1,800 calories knowing that Jess and the kids don't have anything. They're not completely out. Well, maybe not yet, but they will be soon. I had to do something. Martin stared out the window for a moment. Maybe I should try to do something. How would that be any different than me giving them something? I'll take Nick up to town. Lander said the food pantry still had some supplies, remember? Maybe if I make some introductions and Nick can plead his case, they might give him some aid. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Seems worth a try, though. Margaret smiled. She had a co-conspirator. What's with the flowers? Nick asked. Oh, uh, Margaret trimmed back her mums yesterday, and she wanted me to put them on Ruby's grave. We'll do that later, though. 
we can come up over Stockman Hill on the way back. I really want to thank you for helping out, Martin, Nick said. We haven't gotten you anything yet, cautioned Martin. I know, but just coming along, showing me who to talk to. Nick watched his feet as he walked. I didn't know there was a food pantry or about the shelter and stuff. Well, it helps to come to the meetings, Martin cringed inside at the irony. He had been avoiding town meetings for ten years and only attended two. Yeah, I suppose. I really wanted to somehow make it on my own, you know, provide for Jess and the kids. I tried to do some hunting in the woods out back. I heard you shooting, a lot sometimes. Oh, well, that was target practice. I'm trying to get my group a bit better with shooting. Could be more trouble with the beggar types. Ah, uh, makes sense. Sounded like too much for hunting. Still, I went out in my woods, but I couldn't find anything. Jess is trying to be all brave about it, but I can see she's really worried about the kids. Nick lapsed into silence for the rest of the walk. The burdens of a father and a husband can be extremely heavy in lean times. Oh, hey there, Simmons. Landers came up to shake Martin's hand. How are you getting along with your new guests? Pretty good, right? They seem like a nice couple. Martin noticed that Landers had conveniently forgotten the almost fight at that Friday meeting. He was still trying to sell the relocation deal. Martin wondered how he would react if he told him about the red bra incident. But there was no way to even start that conversation. Some cans of worms are best left closed. Yeah, it's been interesting, Martin said. But I came up with my neighbor here, Nick Oldham. He's in the house down the road from us. Landers shook Nick's hand heartily. Moved in a short while ago? I don't recognize you. Nick dropped his eyes. Well, actually, we've been here for almost twelve years now. Moved in when my son was just four. Ah, Landers was at a momentary loss. Nick was yet another unknown resident. The small-town ethos of everyone knowing everyone else had been strained, if not outright eroded, by the twentieth-century psyche of the bedroom community. Towns were just a place for people to sleep, not live. They lived their lives somewhere else, mostly in their cars, commuting, at distant jobs, shopping malls, soccer camps, etc. Martin imagined that the selectmen had struggled for years with having a growing population of such shadow citizens. You uh, mentioned something about having some supplies in the food pantry, Martin said. Nick and his family are nearly out of food, so I wondered if... Landers started to shake his head. Now, we don't have that much, and we're trying to parcel it out to the families that took in shelter folks. That Quinn guy said there'd be a supply truck on Friday. Even his packet described deliveries to restock our local node until the next phase, but there ain't been no trucks. Please? Nick actually clasped his hand in the archetypal begging pose. My kids are getting hungry. I don't mind rice cakes uh, so much, but the kids, they need more than that. Please? Anything? Martin could see Landers' shoulders sag. He was too much of a public servant to have a cold heart. Well, maybe a little, he rushed in the disclaimers. But the food pantry can't be a regular source for your family. It has a lot of other mouths to feed and not enough to go around. Oh, oh, I understand, Nick gushed. It was not quite a yes, but it sounded like the lead-up to one. Come this way. Landers led Nick down to the town hall basement. Martin waited in the corridor. He didn't want to look like he was shopping, too. 
Oh, no, really, this is great. I can't thank you enough. This is wonderful, Nick continued to gush. He came up the narrow stairway with a lid of a banker's box in his arms. On it were several cans of vegetables, some small boxes, a bag of rice, and a bag of dry beans. The box lid was an inadequate vessel. Everyone shook hands. Oh, this is wonderful, Nick kept repeating. Jess and the kids are going to be so excited. Oh, I imagine, said Martin. Try to be careful, though. They might be tempted to eat until they're full at the very first meal. And when you've been hungry for a while, it can take a lot to feel full. Everything you have there could be gone in a day. Nick looked somber at the thought. The debris field of FEMA wrappers indicated that they had already done that. I need to go and put these flowers on Ruby's grave, Martin said. A little break from going uphill won't be a bad thing, either. Nick nodded and stayed at the edge of the road. Keeping his shifting load in his arms was a challenge. Martin was relieved to see that the soil was still where he left it. No animals had been pawing around. His little wooden marker stood where he placed it. He laid the little bouquet of orange and purple mums in front of the wooden marker. He thought he should say something at the grave, but had no idea what. He noticed that the trench had a few more places filled in, even beyond Eugene and Keith. Thoughts of the trench had Martin in quiet musings. The faint sound of racing engines drifted up through the silence. He stopped to listen closer. Did you hear that? Martin asked. Yeah, sounds like maybe a couple of cars. A little one and a bigger one, driving really fast. Wonder where that's coming from. It's getting louder, Martin observed. Maybe the police or something, going down South Road? The engine whine was loud and getting louder. Or right at us, Nick exclaimed. He rushed to get out of the road, spilling his box of food over the damp grass and leaves. Up the hill sped a small silver sedan, an older model import. It began to sputter. The engine missed, then cut out altogether. Martin and Nick watched as a little Nissan coasted past them, losing speed quickly on the uphill grade. It slowly crunched to a stop on the roadside before the crest of Stockman Hill. Martin bent over to help Nick pick up his fallen food. A neon blue tuner came roaring up the hill. It screeched to a stop in front of the Nissan. The family in the Nissan had climbed out and stood in a little huddle. Out of the tuner stepped two young thin men in baggy hip-hop attire. They approached the frightened family with hostile gestures and angry words. Martin's instinct got the better of him again. He stepped over to the confrontation. Hey, take it easy, he shouted at the first hip-hop. They're not bothering anyone. Nah, you take it easy, chump. Hip-hop number one pulled a huge pistol out of his coat pocket and aimed it at Martin with a swaggering one-handed pose. This ain't none of your business. These people done stole some of our stuff, and we're taking it back. Martin was caught flat-footed. He had his nine-millimeter in his pocket, but he also had a bag of beans in his hand. There was no way he could outdraw a trigger pull. Yeah, back it off. It's ours, said Hip-Hop number two. He pulled a chunky black pistol out of his jacket and aimed it at the huddled family. The frightened mother was trying to cover her eight-year-old son with her arms. Back off, trash, or I'll pop you two, threatened Hip-Hop one. He waved the big pistol around before pointing it back at Martin. It was an odd piece. It had a very long barrel, longer than Martin would have thought would ever fit in a jacket pocket, 
It had no cylinder, so it must have been a semi-auto, yet the barrel looked fixed and had a top rail like Martin's slug barrel did, only chunkier. Yeah, don't make me shoot you too, blustered Hip-Hop One. Don't make me shoot you, came a booming voice from the house beside them. All eyes snapped around to see. Beside the heavy porch post stood a stocky man, silver hair, his eyes behind the scope of a long rifle, aimed at Hip-Hop One. Both Hip-Hops turned their pistols toward the porch. And I don't want to shoot you either, came another voice. This one came from the house across the road. A middle-aged man stood behind a hedge with a pistol, fully extended, and the bead on Hip-Hop Number Two's head. But I could change my mind. You boys put your boys on the ground, boomed the man on the porch. Hey, protested Hip-Hop One. They stole our stuff. We's just getting back our stuff. Don't know, don't care, boomed Porchman. Put em down before I decide to help you. Both young men slowly lowered their hands and laid their guns on the ground. Now, get back in your car and get out of here, said Porchman. His eye never left the scope. The young men stooped to retrieve their guns, but the other homeowner shouted, Not with those! You just leave those here. Hey, those are ours, protested Hip-Hop One. Back to not caring, said Porchman. I don't think you boys ought to have those. You're acting kind of irresponsible. Uh, go on, get back in your car. He waved the barrel toward their car. The young men looked at each other, as if expecting the other to have a better idea. They slowly walked backward and got into their tuner without taking their eyes off of either homeowner. After a sloppy three-point turn, the tuner roared down the hill and back into the distance. Okay, now what's going on out here? demanded the man on the porch. He and the man across the street had relaxed their stances. Both held their guns at high ready. Martin explained about him and Nick living on Old Stockman Road, coming back from town hall, the engine roars, the little Nissan stalling, the arrival of the tuner boys. The man on the porch introduced himself as Gene Merdot. The man across the street said he was Lyle Talbot. Don't remember seeing you before, said Gene. No, wait, you were at that meeting on Monday. Martin nodded eagerly. You had a sausage or something. Uh, yeah, that was me. What a thing to be remembered for, Martin thought. You ought not to be going around unarmed, said Gene. These are kind of dangerous times. Martin explained about having his nine millimeter, but a bag of beans, too. I'm sure glad you guys stepped in, said Martin. Not sure what they would have done with these people. Attention turned to the three newcomers, still in a tight huddle beside their Nissan. The father introduced himself as Carlos Perez. He said they came from Manchester. His English was pretty good, but his accent was pronounced. He introduced his wife, Anna, who didn't speak, but had the air of an Ethiopian princess about her, albeit a frightened princess. Young Lucas was more eager to talk. He spoke with almost no accent at all. Carlos told how they ran out of gas going up the hill, trying to escape the men in the blue car. Well, what do you plan to do with your new friends, Simmons? Jean asked. My friends? But they ran out of gas coming up the hill. I was just walking here. Well, don't look at me, said Talbot. Got a full house already. Finders keepers, said Jean. Looks like they're yours. Out of gas or not. 
I'd appreciate them taking their car away, too. Don't want that left in front of my house. Pick up those punk's guns, too. Looks like you need them. And don't go around carrying bags of beans. It's dangerous out here. The Perez family looked at Martin as if he held their lives in his hands. He had no idea what he'd do with them. The only agenda item on the table was to get their car off the road. They pushed it up over the top of Stockman Hill, then everyone had a nice ride down to the other side. Nick helped push the Nissan to Martin's house, thanking him again for helping at the food pantry. Martin reminded Nick to go easy on the portions. He nodded, then hurried back to his house, beaming. He was bringing home some food. "'What have you done now?' exclaimed Margaret. The Perez family stood in the same tight clump, near their dead Nissan. "'It's a long story,' sighed Martin. Margaret came close enough to speak without being overheard. "'Martin, we don't have enough food for three more. "'Nor do we have enough house. "'Our septic system will barely handle the seven of us. Ten is out of the question. "'We can't afford to have the septic tank conk out on us in the middle of winter.' Well, then what are you going to do with them? Why are they my problem to deal with? Martin raised his voice, but lowered it again. And I don't know what to do with them. I had no idea I would have to know what to do with three more people. Well, you always come up with a plan, Martin. Now would be a good time to do it again. What if we just let them stay the night, in the living room or something? The next town meeting is tomorrow. I'll ask if there's any other donor families that might take them in. The Perez family sat in a tight little huddle at the back of the living room. They had a small wall of suitcases and boxes in front of them, like kids making a fort. Nance and Miri brought their own food for supper. Good manners says that I should offer these people some supper, Margaret said softly. But that might spark some complaints from you-know-who. Oh, um, excuse me, began Carlos. He had obviously overheard. We could not take your food, Mrs. Martin. You have already been too kind to us. We have some food things. We will eat those, and thank you muchly for letting us to stay in your warm house tonight. We did not know where we would be tonight. But we got away from them, didn't we, Papa? beamed Lucas. His mother shushed him. Yes, we did, Lucas. Now don't bother the nice people. It was the Azules, said Lucas, as if he had uncovered a Nazi plot. I thought they were going to catch us a couple of times, but my papa, he drives like a race car driver. Now, Lucas, it's true. Like that first time, you turned like you were going to go on the highway, but then cut back left, and they missed the turn completely. Oh, that was so cool. That's my papa. Anna tried to dampen her son's enthusiasm with some motherly pats on his shoulders, but Lucas was too excited to notice. I knew it was the Azules. Mama didn't want me to look, but I did, and I saw our house. It had the blue mark. That's their color. The crowns, they like red and yellow. They were marking houses two streets over, so I knew the Azules would come. They could not let the crowns claim our street, too. They came to our door a few days ago, said Carlos. They said that since the government was not helping the people, they were helping the people of the neighborhood, people who had very little food, they asked us to give some food for the poor. We did. The next day, they were marking houses across the street. More blue paint. Las Azules, whispered Anna with dread. I saw them arguing with people across the street, said Carlos. They hit one woman. I think she did not want to give them food. 
Since she would not give them food, they punched a hole in the gas tank of her car and drained it into buckets. I was afraid that I would be next. So, after dark, I went out to my car with the wires. I made the fuel pump to run. I have a short piece of tubing from another fix-up job that I did. I pumped the gas into a soda bottle. Tube is too short. So, I have to make the bottle tilt. I only get a half a bottle. My papa, he hid the bottle of gas under the floor in the front closet. It was a good thing, too, because when the Azules came, they said they needed more food for the hungry. They did not stay at the door. This time, they came right in and looked all around the house, said they needed to check how much food we had, and then they took a lot in their arms. Mama said there would not be enough food for us if they took so much. The men, they laughed. They said that if we had no more food, they would come back and that Mama could do something for them. Anna silenced Lucas with a finger across her lips. Carlos continued. Before they left, they did punch a hole in my car's gas tank, as I feared. They drained it into buckets and then into a gas can. I did not wait for them to take the last of our food or anything else. Anna looked down to hide her eyes. The police were, well, our street is not in one of their areas, so I knew that they would not come. We had to go, but I did not know where. I had Anna pack up the rest of our food and put it in the car. Lucas packed up his clothes. Anna packed ours too. I switched the hoses on the fuel pump so it would take from my bottle. I took my grandfather's pistol from the hiding hole. I had only three of my grandfather's bullets. We were getting ready to go, burst in Lucas. Papa had me hold the soda bottle in the back with the tube inside. That was my job. I had to tilt it so it almost sloshed out. But I didn't spill any, Papa, even when you were driving like a race driver. Today, the young men drove up to my house, Carlos said. They knocked on the door, but of course, we did not answer. We were hiding in the car, said Lucas. Anna shushed him. When they went around back to check on the back door, I started the car. The men came running, but I drove as fast as I could. I wanted to watch, whined Lucas, but I had to hold the bottle. I couldn't see. I drove down the big 293 highway, and I turned east. The young man had a fast car. They were catching up. Where the highway splits, goes north or south, I veered to the south. They were close behind me, too close. They could not follow when I turned left at the last minute. I could hear the tires screeching. Oh, man, I wanted to see. Lucas whined some more. It sounded so cool. They had to stop and go back, so I thought I could turn onto another road before they saw and lose them, but there were no other roads in time. I could see the blue dot in my mirror. Lucas nodded. The other kids say that the Azules never give up. At last there was another road. I turned east again. I do not know the road. We do not go that way often. They followed me, and they were getting closer. They pulled up beside me. One of them pointed a gun. So I stepped hard on the brakes, and I turned right. I did not know that road either. It did not matter. I had to get my family away, anywhere. The roads were so twisty, said Lucas. I had a hard time keeping the bottle steady. It helped that it didn't have much left in it. I drove as fast as I could, said Carlos. But I had no idea where I was going. My only thought was to get away fast and escape from the Azules. I thought maybe I had lost them at the last turn, but I saw them again. They were catching up. I passed through your town. When we came up that big hill, the car began to stall. We could not get to the top of the hill. The bottle was empty, said Lucas. 
My wife, Anna, she began to cry. New tears rolled down Anna's cheeks as Carlos recalled the event. We got out of the car, but I knew we could not outrun the men. They were young and angry. I did not know what to do. That is when you and your friends came and saved us. We are very thankful to God that you were there. Gracias, whispered Anna as she nodded. So you see, Mrs. Martin, we are simply happy to be alive for another day. We will happily eat our own food and thank God for the chance to sleep in your house for even one night. We do not know where we will be tomorrow, but that is okay. It is only through His grace that we even have a tomorrow. Things are getting kind of complicated around the Simmons household now. If you're enjoying the story thus far, consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash McRoland. I do love my coffee.